Hey there. Hi there. How's it going? Um, I'm gonna preface this like just as as normal for for me now. I am a delicate snowflake. Yes, and I can handle extreme temperatures so long as I don't have to like fluctuate between extreme temperatures, like really hot to really cold and really cold to really hot. Okay. And I had to leave work the other day <laughs> because I had worked outside all morning and then I came inside to an air-conditioned building and was immediately feverish. Oh, yikes. <laughs> I am baby. You are baby, yes. <laughs> I know. At How least, are you? At least you don't have floods. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that for you. Yeah. Well, everyone's fine. We just had yeah. a roof leak, and now... You, you had a really serious roof leak, from what I remember. Was, yeah. I posted a picture on it of it on Instagram, but afterwards it developed. So, yeah, it's a bit more now. It's quite yellow and gross, mm -hmm. and we're going to have to re-dye the wall entirely. Or, well, oh. that part. Neat. Neat. I love a little arts and crafts. But we can't do that yet because the roof is not fixed yet. So I <laughs> have to wait until it's fixed. And then we're going to re-dye it. <laughs> Yay. At least you have a tall Dutch boy who can, like, reach the hard-to-reach places. That's true. <laughs> we have a new TV. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> And that one avoided being flooded out, I hope? It did. Uh, Thank God. He did bring it home when it was completely raining outside. Oh. But Good. managed to bring it inside in the few, like, two minutes when it was not raining. So it, it survived. Damn. It, it's good. Respect. We haven't set it up yet. <laughs> Hopefully well, tomorrow. Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Stephanie. And I'm Elena. And this is Bet You Wish This Was an Art Podcast. Welcome. God damn. That's... Everything is so much. Everything <laughs> is a lot. And you know what? We're not going to stop. We're going to never stop never stopping. Because <laughs> in in a fun twist... In a fun turn of events, Elena, you don't know what today's episode's going to be about. I have no idea. <laughs> and not to sound like we're trying to, you know, take a take a theme that other people have been doing successfully for decades now. I think I wanted to... Well, first of all, you've given me the opportunity to be completely clueless sitting through an episode. Yes. Uh, the Kikotsu... <laughs> Uh, Shalva episode. Yes. Had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, everything's been a little much, and I wanted to give you a break. That's sweet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Do you want to guess? Do you want to have like a, a little turn trying Oof. to figure out what it is I could be talking to you about? I don't know. You either got the idea when we were doing the archives research or the night at the museum research. Uh -huh. So somewhere in that field, question mark? 
Kind of. There's a little of both. How about that? That's, I'll, I'll take that as a solid guess. <laughs> so you want to tell me about what it is? So yes, I did get some of the inspiration from both. I, I got the idea a little while ago. Um, and between the research for Night at the Museum and for Archive Fever, I also picked up a book, Elena. Mm-hmm. From, so I picked up a book and at first I thought it was just going to be fun, lovely, an easy read. Um, <laughs> um, inspirational material, if, okay. if you will. But because of this book, Elena, today I'm going to be taking you on one hell of a journey. <laughs> okay. I'm excited. Uh, because we've talked about many different, I don't know, characters and themes on this podcast, right? And uh, honestly, the research that you do for this podcast is absurd and intense and intimidating. <laughs> I, I still think I don't do enough, but okay. I know. But then I get 10-page summaries sent to me. <laughs> but it's only 10 pages. But Elena, today it's my turn to return the favor. Okay. I'm into this. Because <laughs> I've been sitting on this story for a little while now. And and while it's not like the most controversial thing I think we've talked about on this podcast, it'll help bring us back to our roots. Okay. And and not like the, the shit-talking artist's roots or the like fangirling over art movements or heavily <laughs> critiquing art institute roots. You know, all that good stuff and are extremely valid what other roots do we have (laughs) elena today i'm going to talk to you about art theft oh (laughs) that makes sense Mm -hmm. okay okay i'm into Mm -hmm. this (laughs) buckle up buttercup we're in for quite a treat i am strapped in Mm -hmm. let's go inside the vehicle all right In the British National Archives, there's a piece of handwritten newsletter dating back to May 9th, 1671. Okay. And it reads, The fifth, five men coming on horseback to the tower at about six in the morning. Three alighted, whilst the other two held their horses. These three went into the tower to see the crown. One a clergy habit, when admitted two of them who went into the rooms whilst the third stayed out the door bound gagged and wounded mr edwards who had the custody of it and carried away the crown mr edwards son coming in and finding his father in that condition pursued one of the villains shot at him but missed him as also the sentinels but they were so closely followed that two were taken at, at about the iron gate Old Blood, who went under the name of Alfie, the priest disguised, and one Perot, and afterwards Young Blood, by a fall from his horse about Gravel Lane, who went under the name of Hunt, and was the same that seized the Duke of Ormond. They were brought to Whitehall and sent to custody. The other two escaped. Okay. Crown. The letter, in a clear for the 17th century detail, describes a frightful scene. An early May morning, the robbery of crown jewels, a firefight, and an escape. Intriguing. And it 
also briefly mentions a kidnapping of a duke, but we'll uh, we'll talk about that one later. Who was the one who was beat up to a pulp? <laughs> oh, we'll we'll get into it. We'll okay. Get into it. Okay. I'm getting ahead. And of before myself. we get yes, and before we get too ahead of ourselves, uh, mm-hmm. let's go back a few decades. Say around 1618. Okay. History doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? And so for most of the time, if something happens, it's because a whole bunch of other things happened first. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, uh, we wouldn't have modern Australia without the American Revolution, and we wouldn't have world wars without the assassination of some archduke. And so in order to kind of like help us build context for the story um we're gonna do a little of the littlest overview of 1618 are you ready i'm ready all right <laughs> so in 1618 sir francis bacon becomes the lord chancellor of england the sir francis bacon yeah, yeah, yeah. okay also in that year german astronomer johannes kelper discovers the third of his three planetary laws all right that's, that's good for science yeah um, and this little thing called the Second Defenestration of Prague happens in 1618, where two Catholic lords and their secretary are thrown out of a window. Yikes. <laughs> here's a here's a small aside. Defenestration is my favorite art history term. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of it. It's it's when it's the formal act of throwing somebody out a window. Right. That thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. The, that completely normal word that we use in everyday language. <laughs> if the second defenestration of Prague doesn't ring any bells, I will tell you that this was the start of the Thirty Years' War. Okay. Which is a religious conflict that's been referred to as one of the longest and most brutal wars in human history, which was fought between the Catholic and Protestant states, and it eventually led to the formation of the Holy Roman Empire, which you might have heard of. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But that's a bold claim to make that it's the bloodiest war in history. It's one of them. It's one of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. 30 years war, (laughs) no one pulled punches. Go talk to the German states. They'll tell you, nobody pulled punches. Okay. (laughs) Um, And so in all of this chaos, in the Midwest region of Ireland, Thomas Blood is born. Nice surname. He was the son of a successful land-owning English blacksmith, and his paternal grandfather was a member of the Irish Parliament, um, who actually lived in Kilnaboy. Uh, I think it's Kilnaboy. It, we're going to get into some weird English pronunciations, but Kilnaboy Castle, which is in County Clare. Okay. And and this was a respectable and prosperous family, or at least especially by sixteen eighteen times, right? They're, they're landowners, but they're not necessarily landowning nobility. Um, Thomas's father worked for a living, was able to raise and support his family. And, and Thomas's father also held lands in Clare, Meath, and Wicklow counties. So, you know, Good this money. is as firmly, this is as firmly middle class as it gets. Merchants yeah. in the 1618s. And considering the fact that there isn't really much room for class mobility at this time, this is pretty incredible. Especially like in England, no? Yeah, especially in England, when yeah. you're kind of like either wealthy or you're not. <laughs> yeah. And and this is still, you know, before, this is when you had the absolute monarchy. Charles I is king during this time. And while not much is known about Thomas's childhood and upbringing, we do know that he eventually, 
We do know that he eventually got his education in Lancashire, um, where at about age 20, he met and married Maria Holocroft. Nice. Lang- Lang- Little wedding. Huh. Lancashire. You c- you- Lancaster, no? <laughs> no, Lancashire. There's a Lancaster, put- but there's also Lancashire. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Still England. Um, okay. We've moved from Ireland to England now. Mm-hmm. And so Maria is interesting, his his new wife-to-be, because she's the daughter of Margaret Haywood and John Holcroft. And Holcroft was an English politician who sat in the House of Commons between 1640 and 1648. So way down the line. But he's he grows he's he's got political leaning. Yeah. Right. And and by and large. They seem to have, like, a pretty normal, pretty standard middle-class experience. And where drama seems to begin for Thomas was in about 1642. Okay. Which is the first outbreak of the English Civil War. Or at least the first English Civil War. Yes. You might have heard of it. <laughs> I've heard of it. Um, while initially blood served under royalist forces, uh, loyal to Charles I of England... Thomas would eventually switch sides and become a lieutenant over in Oliver Cromwell's army. Okay. We love a flip-flopper, especially during wartime. A turncoat is never a good thing to be. No. Um, And historians would argue over, like, why his turncoating his his change of heart, whilst some argue that it's because Maria's father was serving in the parliamentary army Mm -hmm. and was loyal to Cromwell. Um, and that he recruited his son-in-law to his side. You know, that, like, very romantic, capital R, romantic concept of, by candlelight, converting this boy loyal to the crown to the side of the people. Uh, and while it's a fine argument, um, it doesn't hurt that Cromwell was decidedly winning. And that when uh. when when Cromwell ultimately does win... He gave Thomas land grants as a payment for his service and also uh, appointed him as justice of the peace. So it makes sense why he turns, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to go with the side that's uh, most definitely going to win. Sometimes you do. The Civil War effectively ended in 1649. Others will say, like, it ended in the 50s. But realistically, with the execution of Charles I, it uh, pretty decidedly ends. Yeah. And Cromwell serves as Lord Protector of the United Kingdom. And and while the history of Oliver Cromwell is um fascinating, I guess, it's definitely it's not necessary for this story in particular, outside of like the concept of turn Cromwell coding. Well, turn coding, but also Oliver Cromwell was a man of the people and wanted to and was like decidedly the only person to rule in the united kingdom without a noble title he was the lord protectorate but he wasn't king that's impressive and and is the only man to do so in in the entire history of the united kingdom so like that's that's important because it also establishes you've taken the concept of monarchy and you've humanized it to the point where you can publicly execute your king I think the French did it first, though. This is the 1600s, though. Ah, oh, true. True. Yeah. Okay. France, France is still absolute monarchy. England said, hold my crown. Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> 
And and so Oliver Cromwell is interesting. This is not a history podcast as much as it's not an art podcast, so <laughs> I won't go too deeply into it. Um, all that matters is that by 1660, um, with the death of Cromwell, because mm-hmm. he ultimately dies of natural causes, and the restoration of the monarchy, <laughs> surprise, surprise, um, King Charles II is restored to the rightful crown of the three kingdoms. In 1660, and this is when Thomas Blood and his family flee back to Ireland. Okay. Now, Cromwell did give them a... Well, with reason. Cromwell did give them a whole bunch of land, but under the Acts of Settlement in 1662, the Crown confiscated a whole bunch of Cromwell-dictated lands and also forced restitutions, and that brought the Blood family to financial ruin. Well, of course they did, because it was... Well, of course they did. <laughs> it was doctrines given out in a time when, like, the royals weren't in power, so as soon as they come into power, they're going to change it back to how it was before. Makes sense. Yes, but, like... But it also, <laughs> it's sad, but it, that's history. It bankrupts history. this family. It, it makes bankrupts sense. this family. Yes. yes. It does make sense. It makes perfect sense. But... It's unfortunate. In return... In return, okay. Thomas sought to unite his fellow Cromwellians in Ireland to cause insurrection. Ah, give me back my lads. <laughs> Fuck you, Crown. <laughs> and and I know I've been talking about a lot about history and names and dates and places. And uh, the 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 theory here isn't necessarily to like get into early civil war English civil war history. That's not necessary. But I wanted to paint like a picture of why this is, say, BiWAP episode and not like a Behind the Bastards or a Dollop <laughs> episode, right? This yeah. this isn't just, we're not here for the history. The history is important because we've, we've set the stage. Yes. But what comes next is explicitly inspired by this book I picked up. Okay. Um, I'm ready. The name of this book is... How to Steal the Mona Lisa and Six Other World Famous Treasures. Ah. By Taylor Bayuth. That makes sense. It is going back to our roots. It is going back to our roots. After the execution of Charles I in yeah. 1649, many of the crown jewels were sold and destroyed. All right, because, like, if you're going to get rid of the monarchy, you get rid of all of it. Yes. And that includes the symbols of power. And a lot of it was broken down and redistributed um, as gold coins, for example. Um, the first mint under Cromwell printed them on gold pieces minted from the monarch's crown. Yeah. Pretty metal. <laughs> Standard. <laughs> and, and, and after the Civil War, specifically, the coronation regalia was brought to the tower to be destroyed by an like by an order of parliament, um, which ordered that these highly symbolic coronation regalia to be totally broken and defaced, and and while it's rough, obviously it's it's to explicitly state that we have executed the monarchy; it is mm. dead. And and many of the officials at the Towers Jewel House put up a fight. For example, like the the jewel house clerk, the Carew uh, Milkman, who was responsible for like taking care of it, was arrested for refusing to hand over the keys to the parliamentarians. Eh. But in the end, the 
precious, already perhaps stolen stones were uh, pried from the crown and sold and told into, like, turned into gold for the people. Or at least coinage for the people. Okay. You can still kind of find pieces from Cromwell's Commonwealth of England stamps, uh, which will have, like, little gold pieces that say Commonwealth of England, and it's got his face on it. Like, OG coins. Typical. But when the monarchy is restored in 1660, what is a monarch to do but make new uh, coronation regalia? He uh, can do many other things, but okay. No, no, no. He was denied his birthright, so he is going to go all out. And Charles II has two new scepters and an orb commissioned for his coronation in 1661. Okay. And he went over the top and i'll break down specifically like what's his but essentially he made himself a crown he got himself an orb a scepter and a rod and just living living his life in mink and uh velvet probably i don't fucking know whatever as, a king wears as one does as one does um, don't we all live like that don't we all and to live up to the hype and also for the marketing aspect of it uh charles ii also allowed the crown jewels to be shown to the members of the public for a viewing fee paid to a custodian who looked after the jewels in the tower of london so a museum essentially and and that's kind of the system that it is today where you can go and see the crown jewels when they're not in use except now because covid but also (laughs) (laughs) but essentially like they they are on display so that the citizens of the nation can see the true seat of power, essentially. Sure. But in 1671, Thomas Blood was the first and only man who attempted to steal them. And he got away with it? (laughs) We'll get into it. But essentially, after his attempts, the crown jewels were kept under armed guard in a part of the tower known as the Jewel House. They returned back to the Jewel House, essentially. So a museum. (laughs) So, um, another museum. (laughs) At the heart of the collection is this coronation regalia, right? The the crown jewels are large and expansive and terrifying. Um, It is one of the most expensive collections in the world, and with good reason. A lot of the pieces that we can think of are precious stones and precious metals Mm -hmm. that are supposed to honor and glorify the British monarchy. And um, many of the objects that were created to crown Charles II were even used in the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953. Ah, okay. There are are some other ones, but, like, the coronation that, uh, the coronation regalia that Charles II had commissioned were the St. Edward's crown, the sovereign's orb, and the sovereign's scepter and rod. And while, aside from the crown, uh, some of the Crown jewels also contain the world's most exceptional diamonds and sapphires, uh, like the Blue Stuart Sapphire and the Koh-i-Noor Diamond. Um, both of these were like the ones that we can think of in the Imperial State Crown and the Queen Mother's Crown. And while they're interesting, their bad luck does not play into the whole events that are about to transpire. And I think what's interesting to kind of like preface here, I was going to mention it earlier, but since we're talking about the actual objects now, before Charles I is executed, uh, as the smallest aside, in one of the things that he said before he was 
ultimately beheaded was that he declared that the crown was corruptible. Um, saying that like he himself was corruptible and yeah, he yeah. himself had fallen, but he's he just throwing that, himself like, under the bus. Well, he was about to be thrown under the metaphorical and literal hangman's axe bus. Yeah. So you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fine time. Die with your secrets. <laughs> Like a true hero does. Like a true hero, die with your secrets. Yeah. Um, but the crown is corruptible. <clears throat> yes, we knew this. <laughs> you didn't have to say it, my man. You didn't have to say it, homeboy. But I think that's, that also plays into this milieu of like what the, the current state of affairs are, right? Because yeah. all of a sudden, you have a monarchy that's in shambles. You have a... A restored peace, but there are still people who lived through the the humanizing of this what's meant to be godly seat. Yeah. And and this is where we get Parliament, right? This is where we get the House of Lords and the House of Commons and da 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 da. Yeah. Remember, Thomas is in all of this making several attempts to revolt against the newly reinstated monarchy. He yes. had fought for the Cromwell, fight for, he fought with Cromwell, and he and some of other Cromwellians attempted to seize Dublin Castle in 1663. Um, and, and tried to take the, uh, Duke of Ormond, who was the former Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, as prisoner. Okay. It failed. It failed. It didn't go so well. But that's all right. Um, in 1670, they tried to kidnap and murder the Duke of Ormond again. But failed. Uh, there's a lot of blundering. There's some really funny, like, anecdotes of, like, them trying to seize the castle, but the guards having seen the group coming a mile away were able to, I don't know, fun stuff. Fun stuff had by all. <laughs> but essentially, by 1670, uh, Thomas Blood had a bounty of a thousand pounds on his head, which is over $200,000. Today's okay. money on his head. Okay. Like, um, uh, was it like wanted dead or alive? Or? No, uh, d- uh, uh, wanted dead or alive, but I think pre- predominantly dead and arrest this man. Send send this man to prison so that we can publicly murder him. Yeah. And so like any good convict, Thomas flees and lives under assumed names for months. But he couldn't resist temptation. <laughs> of course not. In the late spring, in the late spring of 1671, Thomas visits the Tower of London. Mm. According to his confession, Thomas was dressed as a parson who's um, essentially clergy. It's an ordained Christian person. You're not a person, you're a parson. Parson. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was accompanied by what Wikipedia called, quote, a female companion pretending to be his wife. Okay. So you've got you've got Thomas dressed up like a clergyman. Yeah. This woman on his arm who's very Supposed decidedly but who's also very decidedly not Maria. Just interesting, but hey, whatever. Um and in proper live action improv actor fashion they had this whole skit planned out 
right? Yeah. And like I'd mentioned earlier, Charles II wanted people to be able to come and see the crown jewels for a fee, right? You, yeah. you, you pay it to a custodian who lets you see the... Anyways. So when Thomas and his fake wife were visiting the jewels, they put on the, uh, the old, oh, help me, I'm sick bit. Like, straight up, straight up, this woman all of a sudden starts crying out that she feels ill, that she feels faint, that something is afflicting her, that her stomach hurts. And and the real victim of the story, uh, the newly appointed master of the Jewel House, a 77-year-old Talbot Edwards, comes to the aid of this definitely not sick woman. Oh, no. Um, And because he was the custodian, he also had residency in the tower of london and he brought the 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 definitely not sick woman and the definitely not a minister thomas up to his apartment and thus the long con began kind of feels like a like a lupin level heist basically (laughs) all these moving pieces Exactly, exactly. And like in the following, in the weeks that followed, it gets even worse because the definitely not Parson Blood and his definitely not wife begun, like began nurturing a friendship with Talbot and his wife. Um, oh, and in no. fact, like uh, Blood shows up to their house two or three days after his quote, quote wife had like put, was sick in their house and brought presents and was like, thank you so much for being so kind. And, and they became frequent visitors to the house, right? Like they, they were friends. So the moral of the story is don't be nice to strangers. Yeah. But also (laughs) don't be too trusting. (laughs) Don't trust anyone ever. Don't, don't be nice to strangers. Just don't do it. <laughs> no new friends. Especially if you work in, like, if you're, like, a guard or something for the most valuable thing in the kingdom. Yeah, but he's 77 years old, Yeah, man. but... <laughs> First of all, how dare they lie to an old man like this? How dare they? I knew, I saw, the minute I saw that, I was like, Ellen is gonna go on the defense. How dare. Respect your fucking elders. <laughs> That's right. Call also your grandpa. <laughs> I love grandparents. <laughs> How could you hurt the grandpa like this? Oh, it gets worse, Elena. Trust no. me, it gets worse. Because was he having... the one who was beat up? So after having weeks to thoroughly learn the entirety of the Tower of London and having won the couple's trust, this is where the story gets bizarre and starts to feel like a very bad heist movie plot. Okay. After weeks of fostering a fake friendship, the Edwards family is delighted to learn that Thomas and his fake wife have a nephew. Uh. And not only do they have a totally not fake nephew, but this boy would be perfect and awfully convenient as a match for Talbot's unmarried daughter. No! What great news. No! They all agree to help facilitate this meeting, and Thomas agrees to bring his nephew upon the next visit. No. Don't be nice to strangers. Don't be so gullible. So here we find ourselves, Elena. At around 7 a.m. on about May 9th, 
when Thomas arrived at the Tower of London with his four associates. The night of the letter. His actual son, Thomas Blood Jr., who was to pose as the nephew. So it is his son. As well as... Related, at least. It's uh a partial lie. Um, the, the, the article calls Thomas Blood Sr. Old Blood and Thomas Blood Jr. Young Blood. So I might do the same because there's a lot of Thomases and a lot of Bloods. Yes. Old Blood is, is the guy who served under Cromwell. Young Blood is the one pretending to be the nephew. Yes. As well as three other associates, Robert Perot, Richard Halliwell, and William Smith. Okay. Each man was armed with hidden daggers and pistols, and Old Blood, who was still disguised as a fake clergyman, had a wooden mallet concealed in his robes. I'm scared. William Smith hung back with the horses near the tower gates, and the others entered to meet with Talbot. And as you do when it's early, and you're in charge of a priceless art collection, and you're trying to impress this fake nephew this fake nephew to uh, marry your daughter. Mm. Talbot Edwards happily leads this very shady entourage to the jewel house to show them the crown jewels. Don't. Because, I mean, like, what else would you do, right? Like, I have this priceless art collection. Oh. That I need to protect. Yeah, so let me show it off. To anyone. I trust you, sir. Let's let's go check out the jewels. Oh, yeah, let's go. Oh my god. Yes, please. Do you want to be my son-in-law? Let me show you all, all the perks. Because this was a huge mistake in every sense of the word. <sighs> of course it was. As soon as Talbot as soon as Talbot had unlocked the doors, this poor old man was fucking ambushed. No. He was gagged, and someone threw a sack over his head. No. Despite being 77 and unmatched, Talbot tried his best to fight back. <laughs> Grandpa. However, to this, Thomas took his mallet and bludgeoned the <gasps> hell out of him. And when head wounds weren't enough, Old Blood then stabbed the old man in the stomach. Rude. With Talbot out of the way, the thieves tore their way towards the crown jewels and went to work refashioning the regalia to make it easier to conceal. Very ceremoniously, Perrault stuffed the royal orb into his pants. Oh. <laughs> Where it belongs. <laughs> Where it belongs. <laughs> Hallowell tried sawing the royal scepter in two. What? And the bloods were busy using a blood-stained mallet to flatten the imperial crown. Oh. All was going well for the thieves until Captain Wythe Edwards, the good son of Talbot Edwards, arrived from fighting as an officer in the Dutch Wars. Oh. (laughs) Now, Elena, an aside. um, This is the time where, honestly, everything is announced via letter some like five to six weeks in advance, right? Yeah. And you'd think that in all this pretending to be friends part of the long con, um, Thomas could have learned that Talbot's son was coming home early. But no. <laughs> you'd think? No. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, in my heart of hearts, I believe Talbot had a suspicion <laughs> to not 
tell everything to this guy. Uh-huh. And that saved him. Ish. Ish. <laughs> well, that. And also the fact that Wythe uh, had not only been, was not only home, but he had brought a friend. Uh-huh. Captain Marcus Beckman. Lovely. And so as these two war-hardened uh, war soldiers entered the main tower, uh, calling out for Talbot, the the same stabbed, beaten, left-for-dead old mm. man, he managed to remove his gag <gasps> and cry out, Treason! Murder! The crown is stolen! Aww. And as... Uh, wife and Marcus come running to his, the father's aid. Uh, our three would be thieves take off running. Yeah. And so the story then follows the earlier newsprint. After wife discovered his wounded father, he and Marcus ran after the old and young blood. One of the escaping party tried shooting at their pursuers, but missed. And at this point, the guards of the tower were finally alerted to the action and they took chase. Finally. Well, they'd been managed to be sneaky, steady, and uh, they came prepared. They were bludgeoning. They were bludgeoning the crowd. How did that not make noise? It's soft metal. It's it's gold. It's fine. <laughs> um, how do you, uh, and Smith, they were sawing. Yeah. How how do you not hear that? I don't know. It's different than a gunshot, you know. Uh, <laughs> shakes head forever. I know. Uh, Smith managed to get away, um, but Old Blood and Halliwell are arrested by the Iron Gate. Young Blood manages, uh, almost manages to escape by horseback until he crashes said horse into a passing cart and was arrested. How do you Which crash a horse? horse? I know. Who the fuck? Who the fuck crashes a horse? Who the fuck crashes a horse? How do you crash? A live thing that can literally jump out of the way of something on instinct. It feels like a bad movie plot. It feels like <laughs> such a fucking bad movie plot. It does. I would if I was watching this, I would say, "Oh, convenient, right? Convenient." All of it's convenient. I was saying convenient back at the nephew. <laughs> yeah, nephew, and the back at the captain, the son of. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, him, yeah, yeah. him white, arriving white early. Also convenient. Bad convenient. plot. If Bad this plot. was presented to me as like a movie script, I'd say, great, rework some of this. It's too predictable. <laughs> um <clears throat> It's too it's too uh, good for the good guys and bad for the bad guys, and that's not how usually life goes. But here we are. <laughs> oh, guess what? It gets weird. Yeah. Because Elena, you probably know that. Uh, that the penalty for treason in 17th century England was death. Yeah. And and doubly so when the treason involves stealing the literal icons that define godhood, the yeah. state, the monarchy, etc., etc. Et yeah, yeah. Um, but considering that, you know, the good guys have had it so good and the bad guys have had it so bad, the story doesn't end with four men being walked to the gallows or being tortured until their heart stops. Okay. What happens to them? Despite... Their horrible, hideous death that threatened these men. Old Blood was as calm and relaxed as any arrogant white man could be whilst being arrested. (sighs) He and his conspirators are taken to the White Tower of the Tower of London to await trial. 
And then Thomas, old blood, Mm -hmm. demanded to see Charles II. Seriously. (laughs) In fact, he would not testify to anyone other than the King of England. Wow. The lion, the witch, and the audacity. (laughs) The audacity! Who do you fucking think you are, sir? (laughs) Just request to see the king just like that. Demand to see the king. Nay, I will not confess. (laughs) Only to the king of England. This worked. Bizarrely enough, this worked. Thomas is taken to Buckingham Palace before the king and other nobles in chains. And thus begins Old Blood's second major con. Not only did he manage to convince the King of England and his company that he was deserving of life, but he managed to get himself pardoned. (laughs) And not only, not only did he get himself pardoned, which included the a thousand pound reward for trying to kidnap murder the Duke of Ormond. (sighs) Remember how his family gained and lost all that Cromwell land in Ireland, which totally bankrupted the family? To the disgust of Ormond, very reasonably so, Blood was not only pardoned, but was given the land in Ireland. What? Which included a 500 pound stipend, which is nearly $100,000 oh a year in today's money. Does this man have a golden tongue? It's fucking bizarre. What? In contrast, the Edwards family was awarded less than 300 pounds by the king, a sum which was never paid in full. Uh. And Talbot returned to work after his complete recovery. No, Talbot. He died in 1674 and was buried at St. Peter's Chapel at the Tower of London. Although there are many speculations as to why the king pardoned Thomas, my favorite, and the only one that sounds most plausible to me, is that Charles II thought that this incredibly charming and very entertaining man was a delight. (laughs) There was so much showmanship and bootlicking and respectable groveling that Charles's ego was stroked enough to give the would-be villain complete freedom. Oh. Like, there's there's even a story in here where, like, Thomas told Charles II that he had an opportunity to assassinate him, like, was looking down the scope of a gun, but well, as the king was bathing in a river... And as he looked upon his majesty, he saw, quote, his majesty Uh. and could not bring himself to do so. Charles II thought that was wonderful. Oh, my God. (laughs) How? (laughs) Now, Thomas obviously was given freedom by the crown, but it would not last. But it would not last. Obviously. This man cannot be stopped. (laughs) What did he do now? By 1679, Thomas was sued by the Duke of Buckingham for 10,000 pounds. Okay. He was convicted and arrested, but managed to be granted bail in 1680. Oh, okay. (laughs) Blood was released from prison in July 1680, but had fallen into a coma by August. He died August 24th at his home in Westminster, and was buried in the churchyard of St. Margaret's Church. In order to ensure that he was actually dead, and not just (laughs) trying to avoid paying his debt to the Duke of Buckingham, his body was exhumed by the authorities. I mean, I get it. (laughs) His epitaph reads, Here lies the man 
who boldly hath run through more villainies than England ever knew. And never to any friend he had was true. Here let him then by all unpitied lie, and let's rejoice his time was come to die. Wow. Rude. That, my friend, is the story of the first and only man to be successful in barely stealing the royal jewels. Barely. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Old blood is very impressive. Also very evil, and I would beat him up if I saw him. The King of England would agree with you. (laughs) He's impressive. I mean, (laughs) he carried out a heist at the level of fucking, I don't don't even know, like a James Bond's whatever. I wouldn't be surprised if there was like, what is it called? Grappling hook or something involved in all this shit. And then he just got away with it because he he was like very charming to the king. The the book How to Steal the Mona Lisa values the crown and about twelve billion dollars in today's money. Should we start? Should we try to steal? I mean, I've got I've got a book that says how we should do it. So I mean, we, we uh, make this work. We can pretend to be each other's wives. Yeah. No. We'll just we'll sneak <laughs> in. And we'll say, "Wow, I I feel faint." Yeah, and we'll uh, we just we'll, need to we'll find a we just need to find a nephew. A very conveniently located nephew. All, all of it was so fucking convenient. <laughs> like truly, honest to God, reading the story, I was just like, okay, wow, okay, all right, all right, sixteen hundreds. Do you? <laughs> I guess. And I mean, it makes sense, right? Because you're looking at a man who obviously doesn't respect the monarchy, because obviously the monarchy was not only fought against but they executed a king and we see this in france right where where when you when you murder when you massacre when you execute your if when you publicly i'm gonna have a stroke when you publicly (laughs) execute your king yeah it will forever damage the legacy of the monarchy true you cannot look at it in the same way and obviously cromwell was obvious like eventually becomes more monarch than lord protectorate but he never had the title of king yeah so so for him it it very much established a a new divide in british society and so to not only serve under cromwell and be rewarded by cromwell but then to have your lands taken from you and all of these reparations being forced from you by the monarchy again (laughs) it's us yeah. Of course you'd want to uh, to raise some hell and cause some havoc and steal a crown or two. <laughs> yeah. But I also don't beat up an old man for it. I would not have told this story if the old man died. No. I, I know what that does to you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It's fun. How do you feel? <laughs> There's this book called The Lies of Locke Lamora. It's, uh-huh. it's um, a slight fantasy, and it's like a series, but I've only read the first one. And it's about a heist and these orphan boys who are in a team of... Uh, no spoilers, of course. This is just summary. But it's uh, mm-hmm. these 
boys who are orphans and get recruited and trained into becoming these very good, like, heist-pulling geniuses. And nice. <laughs> and in it, you, you see this heist going on with all the twists and turns, and it made me feel while you telling the story like it was something from that book or something similar to it. Uh it's a great book, you guys should read it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's very I would say if I saw this on TV, I would roll my eyes because the convenience, but the fact that it happened in real life. <laughs> just the king just let him go. The fact that he was pardoned truly just made it yeah. ten times more fascinating. <laughs> pardoned! Given land, given money. Some people are like, How? oh, well, he was because he became a spy. Da, 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 da. Or or this was a whole plot created by it's like, come on. No. No. I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> Charles II thought this was the funniest fucking thing to ever happen. Yeah. Huh. Wow. That was a wild ride from start to finish. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad I could provide this for you. Yes, I I feel very entertained. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. And then I thank you for doing this episode with me. No, I have to say thank you this time. (laughs) No, then say it. Uh, Stephanie, thank you for doing this episode with me. (laughs) For me, technically. It is my pleasure, Elena, to give you chaos. Yeah, that's lovely. I enjoyed a lot. <laughs> <sighs> Any final thoughts? Any final words? Um, I'm all for stealing things from rich people who don't do anything for society. Damn fucking right. But don't hurt old people while doing it, and we'll be fine. Respect your elders. Yep. <laughs> That's about it. <sighs> For other life advices, schematics to the Royal Tower, updates, newsletters, transcripts, blog posts, and more, head on over to our website at bywrpod.com. You can also find us on Instagram at bywrpod. And on Twitter at BYWArtPod. And you can also email us at BYWArtPod at gmail.com. And of course, you can check us out on Patreon. Our Patreon is the best way to support us if you like the work that we're doing here at BYWAP. Come say hi. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't beat up old men. No, for God's sake. Come on, guys. (sighs) Be cool. Steal from the rich. <laughs> Steal from the monarchy, but not from the old men who defend it, no. okay? Yes. Come on. He, he had nothing to do with this. <sighs> and remember. When in doubt. Titty out. Lovely. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Boy. Thanks, guys. Boy. <laughs> XOXO.